0: Welcome, everybody. This is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Fall Fables and Fallacies, the Truth About Income Inequality. Um, I am Peter Russo, I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you for coming out. I want to turn out to be a pretty busy legislative day in the House, but thank you for coming. Um, For those of you who are on Twitter, who'd like to get involved in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you, so please use hashtag CatoEvents. Um, so today we are launching a multi-part Hill briefing series that will examine a number of policy areas of particular interest to lawmakers as well as to the electorate at large. Uh, the series is entitled Fall Fables and Fallacies, and over the next few months we'll try to set the record straight on a number of issues and attempt to correct the many myths and misperceptions that are, in our view, adversely influencing public policy discussions. So you might think MythBusters, but without the screaming projectiles of hot metal. Um, It'll be much safer. Uh, So over the next few sessions, we'll look at criminal justice reform, international trade, foreign policy, and more. But today we will explore inequality. So as always, the correct diagnosis of a problem facilitates the correct resolution of it. So what then do people mean when they talk about inequality? Is the debate around income and economic inequality being framed in such a way that will lead to an actual remedy of the described problem? Or is it a distraction from the important issue, a political sleight of hand? Mm-hmm. So to discuss the, all this and to present his new policy analysis, which can be found on your chairs, is Cato Institute Senior Fellow Michael Tanner. At Cato, Tanner heads research into a variety of domestic policies with a particular emphasis on poverty and social welfare policy, healthcare care reform, and social security. Uh, under his direction, Cato launched the Project on Social Security Choice, which is widely considered the leading impetus for transforming the soon-to-be bankrupt system into a private savings program. More recently, Tanner has undertaken a major project to develop innovative solutions to poverty and inequality, and that starts with clarifying the increasingly muddied policy waters. Uh, Tanner is the author of numerous books on public policy, including last year's Going for Broke, Deficits Debt and the Entitlement Crisis. Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution and the Poverty of Welfare, Helping Others in Civil Society. His writings have appeared in nearly every major American newspaper, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. He writes a weekly column for National Review Online. is a contributing columnist with the New York Post. A prolific writer and frequent guest lecturer, he appears regularly on network and cable news programs. Uh, But without further ado, let's please welcome Michael Tanner. Well, thank you very much and
1: I appreciate you coming out today. It's another beautiful day out there. So if you are uh, in here listening to me talk about a number of dry statistics, it means you're either very dedicated or you don't have lives. Uh, I'll I'll go with the former uh, rather than the latter uh, and assume that that's why you're here or else you're just thrilled by me and uh, I mean, you know, I know I have a reputation and it draws people from all over. So maybe that's that's it. Uh, It's an election season. And that means that we are hearing more than the usual uh, amount of irresponsibility out there, and uh, people are saying things that, uh, that uh, have the, the sort of ring of truth, but, uh, but when you check them out, they aren't really there. We're going to do kind of a fact-checking, uh, I think, uh, of the issues around uh, inequality. And I want to clarify before we start that I'm speaking specifically of economic inequality here. Uh, Because I do believe that there is a problem with inequality. If you want to talk about racial inequality or sexual and gender inequality and issues of that nature, I think that is a legitimate issue. But economic inequality, I'm not quite so sure. Uh, It is something that the politicians talk a great deal about because it covers a large number of sins, if you will. Solving the inequality problem can justify everything from trying to increase the minimum wage to opposing free trade. Uh, certainly it is something that's been at the center of uh, both first Bernie Sanders and now Hillary Clinton's campaign. They talk a great deal about the problem of, of economic uh, inequality. Uh, to often talk about the new age, uh, in the Belle Epoque, uh, comeback, uh, that we are once again in a gilded age out here of, of millionaires and starving people. Uh, in society, but it also fuels, to some extent, I think, the Trump campaign and the resentment of elites and the idea that there is this group of people out there that are not in touch with everyone else, that are somehow protected from the economic (laughs) forces that that everyone else deals with, and then there's the the great mass of people underneath who are not part of that uh, and are treated differently. So I want to try, if we can, to look at what is the actual basis in, in terms of economic inequality, where does it matter, where does it not matter? and kind of deal with some of the myths that have sprung up around it. And the first of these is this whole idea that economic inequality has never been so bad uh, as it is right now in the United States, and it's getting worse all the time, that the rich are getting richer, or the poor are getting poorer. We have this ever-increasing gap uh, between the rich and poor, and it just continues to go on. Uh, this is, of course, the famous chart from Thomas Piketty, uh, whose book uh, you know, on, on inequality was sort of a bestseller. It was the uh, bestseller on Amazon that no one ever actually finished reading. Uh, that they actually do a measure of that. If you, could, if you get it on your uh, Kindle, they can tell whether or not you actually completed the book. Uh, this was actually one of the most downloaded books that no one ever actually finished right to the end. Uh, but it was much praised. Paul Krugman uh, wrote, I think, 237 columns praising it. Uh, so it, it's, it's out there, uh, and he does show, if you will, that there was a huge inequality in the United States in the first part of the 20th century, and then that declined, uh, and then gradually has moved back up again, and we're now approaching the area where it was back in the 1920s. We haven't quite gotten there, uh, but we're, we're approaching, uh, approaching that measure. Now, Piketty's work has been criticized a lot, and in the paper I go through... Uh, a lot of the detailed criticism of his methodology and, uh, and how he sort of uh, does 10-year averaging and creates numbers where there were not numbers before. And sort of there's a lot of sort of methodological issues that people have taken with him since that time. And I don't want to go into all of those here, but I think that there is a more fundamental issue. And it, it surrounds both the way Piketty's has looked at this but also the way that uh, a lot of other scholars have, have, who have done much more rigorous and better research, I think, than Piketty on this, and, and also the way some of the politicians as well have looked at that, this, and that fundamental problem is that they tend to look at raw incomes when they discuss inequality. Sort of, it's as if sort of you're trying to find tax burden by looking at the gross pay and sort of ignoring what people actually have in terms of take-home pay and you're going to kind of make measures based on that because there's already an enormous amount of redistribution that takes place uh, in the United States. We already have a highly redistributionary system, uh, both in terms of taxes and in benefits that we we put out. Uh, If you look at the taxes that the wealthy pay, uh, they tend to pay a much higher tax rate. In terms of federal income tax. Uh, they pay far more than their share of the income. The average, the top 1% uh, have about 19% of all income in the United States, and they pay about 36% of all taxes in the United States. So there's a much, you know, you could say it's disproportionate the other way. Now, when you take into account other taxes, the, the poor tend to pay excise taxes, property taxes, uh, payroll taxes. You have if you combine all of that, that disproportion goes away to some extent, but it's still there. There's still, we still sort of tax the wealthy. Uh, to a greater extent than we tax the poor. Uh, you know, remember Mitt Romney's famous 47 percent? Uh, that was kind of nonsense because he lumped people in there, including seniors who had paid taxes in the past, students who will pay taxes in the future, and so on. But there are large numbers of people in the United States who don't pay federal income tax. They pay, they pay other kinds of taxes instead. Uh, and then we have, on the other side, we have a number of programs designed to redistribute wealth. Uh, and this includes uh, social welfare programs that give money to the poor. Uh, we have over 100 uh, anti-poverty programs in the United States, uh, 70 some out of which provide benefits directly to the poor, but we also have social welfare programs that provide benefits to the elderly. Uh, you can consider it sort of Social Security, Medicare, even the large, about two-thirds of the spending under Medicaid is largely redistribution to the elderly. You have to look at all of that sort of redistribution that goes into it, all of which it tends to be means-based to some extent or another. And in fact, if you look at it according to this, is according to the Congressional Budget Office, what you actually see is that the lowest 60% of incomes in the United States are net beneficiaries uh, when you look at taxes and, uh, and benefits that they receive. They actually, they receive more in benefits than they pay in taxes. Uh, meaning that their actual they're actually sort of net out income, if you will, goes up. After they pay their taxes and they receive their benefits, they're actually better off than they were with just their income. At the same time, the, you know, if to the, say the 60 to 80%, that, that fifth or fourth quintile, uh, it's pretty much a break-even point. And then you get to the wealthy, the top 20% in the United States, and they pay far more in taxes than they receive back in benefits. So there's a heavy redistribution from that top quintile to the bottom three quintiles, if you will. Uh, again, if you want to look at the top 1%, it's even bigger than that. Again, you have this huge redistribution that takes place from the top 1% of incomes down to the bottom percent. They, get, they pay far more in taxes than they're going to collect in benefits after you, even after you add in everything Social Security, Medicare, and all the benefits of that nature. They pay far more in that. So the Congressional Budget Office looked at it this way and says, you know, if you take the, uh, the top line that you have uh, the, the sort of raw income data, but then if you bring it down to the next line, that's after you take into account transfers, and then if you take it down further to taxes and transfers, what you actually find is the level of inequality decreases substantially once you take all that into account. Essentially, what you're doing is starting with that peakety line, but then you're bringing the poor up because they're receiving benefits and you're bringing the rich down because they're paying taxes, and that actually levels out the inequality of far more than it appears from just the raw income data. Uh, there's a couple of other ways to look at this, uh, you know, if you think of it's rising and stuff like that. One of the things that people pointed out is that when measuring income, particularly of low-income people, the, the sort of taking the income data, the, the sort of wage data, really has problems because there's a huge amount of unreported income. There's also, you have to take into account credit and things of that nature. So it's much better to look at consumption uh, from, uh, to determine incomes, particularly at to say, at the, the lower income levels. Uh, and if we look at consumption expenditures across time and across quintiles, what we find out is there really has been very little change in the amount of, uh, you know, the rich obviously consume more than the poor. I mean, you know, the poor aren't buying as many cars or houses or, or yachts or whatever it might be. So the rich are clearly consuming more than the poor. But if you look at that ratio, it is largely unchanged over time. You can go back into the, the 1970s even and take it up and you find that there's very little difference in consumption. So while there clearly is an inequality in consumption, it's not growing worse. It's pretty much where it was uh, over time. Uh, if you look at it. So, so I think you can, what you can say is that, yes, there's inequality that exists in the United States. It clearly is, even after all the redistribution, we don't have an equal society. Uh, there is an amount of inequality that exists, but I don't think you can say that it's, it's as big as is commonly portrayed, and I don't think it's fair to say that it's growing worse. This is pretty much something that's been steady uh, at least since the 1960s and probably longer than that if you actually want take it, to take it back. Now, having said all of that, I would think, you know, that's just sort of just the raw numbers, the raw data. But I want to I make a bigger point, if, if I can. And that is, I don't think inequality, economic inequality, is as big a deal as, as it's made out to be in terms of the, the numbers. But if it was, I don't care. <laughs> and, and I really, my, my question to people out there who do is Why? Why does inequality actually matter, economic inequality? Why do we actually care about economic inequality? And I think there's different reasons for that, and I want to talk a little bit about them. And and one of them, I think, is a question of fairness. I mean, I think fairness is sort of a fundamental American value, if you will. We really believe in this whole question of fairness, people getting what they deserve, right? We, We think that people, you know, should earn what they get. And if they get it in an unfair method or unfair means, we don't like that. And I, and I think it's a visceral thing. And I, and I kind of agree with that. And so we have this idea that the rich really don't deserve their wealth. I mean, you know, if we think about who the rich are, we sort of have two images of them. One is they're a bunch of trust fund babies who are sitting out at the pool drinking their Mai Tais, uh, you know, they inherited their money and they haven't really contributed anything worthwhile to society. Uh, and the second is that if, they're not, if they didn't inherit their money, then there are a bunch of Wall Street types who, uh, you know, thought that greed is good and inherit, got their money essentially by swindling people in some way or playing some games on Wall Street uh, that, you know, we certainly know goes on. But the reality is neither of those stereotypes is particularly true. Uh, Inheritance actually is not a big deal when it comes to wealth. One of the very interesting things is if you look at the Fortune 400, for example, only about a third of the people in the Fortune 400 grew up rich. And that's actually a smaller proportion than it was 20 years ago. Uh, 30 years ago, it was about 60% of the people in the Fortune 400 actually came out of wealthy families. But in reality, the poor, uh, you know, most people on the Fortune 400, most rich people, didn't grow up rich. There's, a, there's an admittedly dated study. It goes back 20 years, so I, I you don't know how much faith you put in it. But it suggests that about 80% of American millionaires are the first generation in their family to have a million dollars. So it's not necessarily they're picking it up. But we do know, if you want to look at where uh, the uh, income comes from in terms of the rich, what we find out is that more than half their income generally comes from wages. The rich are actually making money the same way everyone else does. They're getting paid. It's not that this is all capital gains or all money that's, you know, that's in their stock portfolio or things like that. They're not necessarily getting, a, uh, they're getting their money from things that you would have inherited. They're getting money from paychecks, uh, the same way we are now. Much bigger paychecks than I'm getting, uh, certainly. But, uh, but, but it is largely coming, uh, I think, from paychecks, rather than necessarily from things that we would associate uh, with inherited wealth. And it's also not a case where most of the people uh, who are getting rich are getting rich off of basic Wall Street or you know, that sort of stock trading and things like that. And, and if you want to actually look at where the, uh, where the people are, who are, what they're getting their money from, essentially, these are people who run running corporations, that's the largest single group. Uh, here's financial professionals, it's only uh, about 15% of people uh, who are rich are, uh, are essentially in the financial management industry. So that's your, you know, basically your Wall Street types. Uh, so, so essentially these are people who are providing us or getting rich by providing us with goods and services that we want. They're, they've created companies that provide us things that we want, and we buy their things, and we, go to, we, we, uh, you know, we attend their, their events, and we, do, you know, we take things from them because we want them, and we give them our money voluntarily uh, because we, they have something that we want. And that's what essentially makes it. They have much more in common with Steve Jobs than they do with Downton Abbey. I mean, if you actually look at the rich they are much more likely to be a business professional CEO who is doing something that's making the world a better place than they are people who are living off their dynastic uh, inheritance. Sort of tied up with this is the question of if the rich get rich, stay rich, and the poor stay poor. Sort of tied in with this idea of inheritance, whatever. This this ultimate unfairness in the system that says, look, there are rich people out there, and there are poor people out there. The poor are going to stay poor their whole lives, and the rich, they're going to stay rich. But that also doesn't seem to be particularly true. In fact, one of the things I went out and I you know, started looking for who was you know, going to be uh, in, the, you know, in the rich. You know, everybody understands the families you expect to be rich out there. But So I went looking in the Fortune 400. You realize in the Fortune 400 there are no melons, uh, no DuPonts, no Carnegie's or, or, uh, or Hearst's. There is one Rockefeller, David, and I think he's a, what is he, 101 now, so I expect he'll be going away pretty soon. Uh, but basically, the people we thought of as being rich, once upon a time, are not, now I, I would tend to doubt they're poor. I don't know, you know, there's a doubt if there's very many poor DuPonts running around, uh, you know, collecting food stamps or whatever. But, uh, but the chances are of them being at the top, being that low 1% again, is declining. In fact, one of the things we know is that over time, the great fortunes are dissipated. There's actually evidence that suggests out there that by the third generation, most great fortunes have, been gone, have gone away. Uh, you know, and think of it this way. You give your kids a bunch of money they didn't earn, they're not the most responsible with it. And the same thing tends to happen with folks who do inherit wealth. They tend to not be the most responsible stewards of that wealth and very quickly they dissipate it one way or another, and, and that tends to, to, to go away. Uh, you know, say they're not likely to drop down to the bottom quintile in terms of incomes, but they are uh, a good chance they'll move out of it. And if you actually look at relative economic mobility across generations, what you find is that depending on if your parents were in the bottom quintile, only about a third of people who were born to that into parents who were in the bottom quintile are going, to stay, are going to be in that bottom quintile themselves. In fact, about 8% are going to actually rise to the top quintile in terms, of, in terms of income. Now, that's too low. We'd like to see a lot more economic mobility in the United States. I mean, I really think that economic mobility is a problem. The fact that people who are born at the bottom are not moving up, and we can talk, there's a lot of reasons why that occurs. But at the same time, it is still possible to move up in the United States. People still are born at the bottom. The American dream still lives. And in fact, most poor people, people who are born poor, will not be poor their entire lives. They will, they will move out of it. At the same time, what you can see is that people in the top quintile, who uh, are born in the top quintile, only about a third are going to be in that top quintile themselves. There's a lot of mobility downward. There's a lot of mobility down in terms of people who are born wealthy and not being, we- you know, not being wealthy by the time they're adults themselves. There's this uh, kind of, even more so than upward mobility, there's certainly that negative downward mobility that occurs, and then we know that in terms of the middle class, the middle class largely moves up uh, rather, than, rather than down. But that does, as I said, this is the problem, we don't have enough economic mobility, and, you know, and I don't want to, you know, when I talk about the fact that people make their own way, and you know, by and large they, they make their thing, I don't want to say that we're negating you know, questions of privilege, questions of luck, uh, how government intervenes, all of those things are very real. I mean, we do live in a society in which not everybody starts equal. But it still shows here that people can move up even if they are in an unprivileged position, people can move down even if they they have privilege and so on. So I, I think you've got to take that sort of thing into account. But we do have a problem. I would suggest if we don't have a problem with inequality We do have a problem in this country with poverty. The question is, are they related? And sort of the idea that if some people are rich, that makes other people poor, I think, is this thing. And there's this kind of fixed pie notion to this, that that essentially the economy is, is one size, and if I take a bigger slice of that pie, you, by necessity, have to have smaller slices of it. And I think that that's sort of a fallacy in terms of economic thinking that we really need to get away from this. In terms of if the pie is larger, everybody can have a bigger piece of the pie. And certainly, we don't see any particular relationship between levels of inequality and levels of poverty. Uh, What this slide shows is actually it measures the top line is the Gini coefficient, which measures it's the official way that they measure inequality. It's a ratio that measures inequality in a country. The United States has one much higher than Europe, for example. Uh, And it's slowly been rising a little bit in terms of the way they they measure it. Uh, But if you compare that to poverty levels, either the official poverty level uh, or a couple of supplemental poverty levels that we think are more accurate than the official poverty level, they take into account much more of the redistribution that takes place. Uh, what you see is declines in poverty levels that go on even as the Gini coefficient is flatter or rising. So you don't see that poverty goes up when inequality goes up. I mean, if if the theory was true, what you would see is that Gini coefficient rising, you would see the poverty rate going up right along with it, and yet you don't see that happening. So I would suggest that you can't prove any sort of relationship between the two. Uh, And in fact, I want to take it another way to look at it. Uh, the poverty, you know, measured against the 1%. This is a share of the, the uh, purple line, and it's the poverty rate, the official Census Bureau poverty numbers. Uh, and the blue line is the percent of income in the United States earned by the top 1%. So this is sort of even before redistribution takes place, both these numbers in order to compare apples to apples. We're using before, you know, kind of the raw income numbers for the 1%, and also the raw poverty data. And what you see is the raw poverty devil that is essentially flat even as the predistribution, redistribution income of the, of the 1% rise. Again, no discernible uh, co- correlation there. You should, if the theory was correct, see poverty rising at the same rate that the income of the top 1% was rising, if that was, that was true. Uh, you know, and I think that, that you could largely argue is because we do have a largely redistributionary system and what you see here is a measurement of poverty rates against spending on social welfare programs. The blue line is the spending we do in terms of providing redistribution to the poor. And the red line is, the, is the sort of the alternative poverty measure. The, the, um, the, it's a Sullivan-Meyer it's a Meyer, or Meyer-Sullivan measure, which we think does the best job of measuring uh, poverty rates. And what you see is essentially that there's been some decline in poverty doing this, but it's largely been flat for many years, despite the fact that we've had increases in redistribution going on. But the fact is that redistribution is rising rapidly, and that's not uh, ending poverty either. So, you, so the question of whether just more redistribution would, would make a difference if we somehow reduce that inequality by taking more money away from the rich and giving more money to the poor, that that would, that would solve the poverty issue. Uh, you certainly raise questions about it, given this sort of, sort of data. I want to, one last myth, if I can, and you know, and this one. This one is not as easily put into numbers, but I, but I do want to address it because I think it's one we hear a great deal about, and that's the, now there's people have sort of given up on the idea that there's actually econo- the economic inequality actually measures in terms of dollars, how many people are poor, or, or things like that. But the, the argument now is that it's more of a political question, and that's the idea that inequality distorts the political process. That the elites here in Washington, with their money and their donations, uh, can determine political outcomes. And everybody knows all we have to do is ask President Jeb Bush about how accurate this is. But I think this is based on a fundamental misunderstanding, which is the idea that somehow this—it's almost a conspiracy theory—that somehow the rich all share the same political, philosophical, and ideological goals. And you know, my question is, if you can find a common interest held among uh, uh, Charles Koch and George Soros and Tom Styron and Sheldon Adelman, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, they don't seem to, you know, they seem to have different philosophies, different ideologies, they give to different candidates. Uh, they don't seem to share a common goal uh, of any kind that, I, that I'm able to determine of. I mean, it, you know, certainly we can demonize one side or the other and we'd love to do that politically and say, oh my God, Soros is buying the election or the Koch brothers have bought the election or whatever. And in reality, they both gave the, opp- the opposing sides of this debate uh, and largely uh, canceled each other out. Uh, now, I, when I say that th- it doesn't distort the political process I also want to sort of go the other way on this and suggest that the political process, to some way, distorts inequality. It's not that because we, we, you know, you have inequality and that affects the political process. The political process often creates more inequality. And too much in this, you know, too much wealth in this country exists. And I mentioned to say, not just because of privilege, but because of political intervention. The fact that we bail people out who who don't deserve it and so on. Government, you know, sort of the crony capitalism that exists often creates more inequality than government solves. Uh, and in fact, in many ways it strikes me as being kind of bizarre that you have so much inequality that's brought about by government action, so the answer to that is we want more government action. That, that doesn't seem to always make sense to me. Uh, but uh, but it, you know, certainly I think that we do have to watch out for the fact that government can intervene in ways that distort normal economic processes and which can lead to greater inequality. But but that's different than saying that the existence of inequality itself somehow manipulates elections or things like that. And why do I think this is important? Well, I think this is important because we have to be careful that when we that if we address the wrong problem, we can come up with some very damaging solutions. If our goal is to reduce poverty in this country, I think that's a great one. But that's not addressing inequality. I mean, if look at if we doubled everybody's income tomorrow. That would be a wonderful thing. Think of how many people we'd lift out of poverty if we did that. And we'd do absolutely nothing about inequality. In fact, by some measures, you'd actually make inequality worse if you did that. So we should be against it, right? I mean, in his book, Piketty uh, criticizes the turn to capitalism in China that occurred under Deng Xiaoping and after that. They've lifted some 8 million people out of poverty as a result of that. Sure, inequality increased. There's millionaires now in China. But what about all those millions of people who are not poor anymore? Isn't that a good thing? All you have to do is look back to the 1990s, I believe it was. And people were concerned about inequality back then. Uh, and one of the things they did to punish the rich was they created a tax on yachts. Uh, this was only going to punish the rich people. After all, poor people don't buy yachts. And so they had this big excise tax they put, they put on the American yacht industry. Uh, now, some people, like uh, John Kerry, actually re-registered their yachts in the Bahamas to avoid this. but. But there was this huge tax uh, on yachts. And the net result was that several thousand American workers who used to make yachts lost their jobs. Uh, Basically, the American boat building industry was all but wiped out at the time. And all those kind of skilled craftsmen making good jobs at good wages uh, lost their jobs. Because we wanted to punish the rich. I mean, let us remember that the rich have to do one of two things with their money. Very few of them actually bury it behind their mansion. So the result is they either spend it or save it. If they spend it, there's people who get that money. If they go out and buy a yacht or a new car or a painting or build a new house or buy more clothes there's people who make those things and sell those things, all of whom earn money from that, which is a good thing. And if they save it, that's investment money that's available out there for businesses to use to expand their job, uh, their business, hire more workers, raise wages, whatever it's going to be. Wealth is never a bad thing. And in fact, in many ways, we're all better off because of that. So I think it's very important that we get the problem right so that we can get the right solutions. And frankly, worrying about economic inequality is not the right question. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate it, and I will take some questions.